I was not going to be teaching on the resurrection today. But as I was driving to Tennessee last weekend, it dawned on me that I needed to say some more things on the resurrection. There is way much more to learn about the resurrection of Christ beyond that he just died and resurrected. It's because people do not understand the work of God in salvation that on the most important day of the year, the resurrection weekend, men are busy talking and associating the resurrection of Christ with eggs, with rabbit eggs. So I determined that I would come and share more teaching on why the resurrection of Christ is very, very, very important. And especially in the context of what we had taught and learned from the previous week, the work of the high priest. It is important for us to understand the work of the high priest and its connection to the resurrection. It is important for us to understand what constitutes the completion of the work of salvation. It is important for us to understand that the work of salvation can only be performed by the one that God has appointed. The work of salvation can only be done by the one that God has appointed. So as a result, the surest way and the only way to know that we are completely saved is to hear and believe what God says about what Christ did. The surest way and the only way to know that we are completely saved is to hear and believe what God himself has said about what Christ did. Many people, even though they profess Christ, do not want to look to Christ for their assurance. They do not want to look to Christ for their assurance. They look to themselves. They do stuff so that they can look back to what they have done. They look back to what they have done so as to soothe their consciences instead of looking to what the scriptures say Christ accomplished. Yet we have some, we have full assurance. They have full assurance, but not in Christ, but in themselves. They have full assurance in what they have done themselves. And to these, the Lord Jesus Christ would say, many will say to me in that day, many, not just a few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. And done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are many people, religious people. You see, these are people who know the name of Christ because they are coming and claiming what they have done for Christ in his name. And Christ says, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Depart from me. And you do not want to hear that from Christ. That's the last thing that you ever hear, you ever want to hear Christ say to you, depart from me, you lawless person. And yet, also many Christians, many saved Christians, genuine Christians, also struggle with assurance of salvation. They struggle with assurance of salvation because they constantly look to themselves to find that assurance. 
They constantly look to themselves to find assurance. And this is a big trap because you can never find any assurance by looking to yourself. There's nothing in you that you can look at for your confidence. In saying this, it's important for us to have an understanding of some of the marks of false assurance. Marks of a false assurance. False assurance always looks back to an old work or experience. False assurance always looks back to something, to something that happened to you or something that you did. Something that happened to you or something that you did. I believe in Jesus and I was baptized and I did this and I did that. I repented this and I repented from that. True assurance always looks forward to Christ. True faith and assurance always looks forward to Christ. And false assurance always finds peace in you and not in Christ and what Christ has done. False assurance gives false peace in yourself and not in Christ. Faith in Christ is the only source of hope and assurance. But in saying that, we have to understand who Christ is and what work Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit says about the work of Christ. That is the only way we can come to proper understanding of our complete salvation in Jesus Christ. And to develop our teaching this morning, we are going to go to part of Leviticus 16. Part of Leviticus 16, and we're going to read verses 17, verses 21 and 22, 23 and 24. And we're going to develop our teaching from there. Verse 17, Leviticus 16. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he, the high priest, enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has, um, has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live God and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the God and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The God shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the God go free in the wilderness. Verse 23 and 24. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Why do you need a priest? Why do you need a priest? And the same question can be asked differently in this way. Why do you need a mediator between you and God? If you understand this, then you can understand why the resurrection is important. You can understand why you need a mediator. And you can understand the completion of salvation. Now the answer to the question is, because God is holy... Because God is holy and you are not. You are not holy. And if you have to approach God, it can't be without someone that God has appointed. 
if you have to approach God, you need someone who mediates peace. You need someone who mediates peace between a holy God and a sinful man. That's the issue. So the issue for you is peace. You cannot approach God in peace outside the one that God has appointed to be your mediator. You need Christ to put you in the cleft of the rock. Rock of age is cleft for me. That's exactly what that is saying. You need Christ to put you in himself. That you may be able to approach God in peace. So the mediator and the high priest are exactly the same person. The mediator and the high priest are exactly the same person. They mediate peace between you and God, but on God's terms. But on God's terms. But the high priest has to be qualified by God. We can't qualify a high priest because we are not the offended party. It's God who has to qualify the high priest. Listen to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 6. Very, very important. Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 6. This is what it reads. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins and for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There are many points that have been raised here, and I'm just going to highlight some of them so that you understand why you need a mediator who is a high priest. So we'll go verse by verse and hear what the Holy Spirit records for us. Number one, the high priest is taken from among men. The high priest is taken from among men just as the sacrifice to be offered could only be taken from among the congregation of Israel. The sacrifice that was offered in the tabernacle did not come from the Philistines. It did not come from the Amorites. It came from among the children of Israel. Leviticus 16.5 says, He, Aaron, shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So if your mediator has to come, he has to come from among men. Number two, the high priest is appointed on behalf of men. The high priest is appointed by God to represent men before him. The high priest is appointed by God to represent men before God. And many people do not understand that. Many people do not understand that they have a need for a high priest. So they pile their works and they hope to bulldoze their way before the throne of God. And they do not know what the blind man knew in John 9. This is what the blind man said to the Jews. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. 
But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. God does not hear sinners. It's not saying God does not hear the audible voice of the sinner. He is saying God does not act on the things that sinners say. Now, who can fit this bill since you and I have the same problem? We are sinners. How then does God hear us? Who can fit this description of one who is not a sinner and one that God hears other than Jesus Christ himself? So, to be a mediator, you need one that God can hear. To be a mediator, one has to be the one that God hears who is sinless. So you see, there are two things there. They have to be sinless, and God has to hear them. Listen to Jesus himself in John eleven forty two. John eleven forty two. This is Jesus saying, And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus says, Father, I know you always hear me. So if you want a mediator, you want the one that God always hears, not 20% of the time, and not 70% of the time, and not 99% of the time, you want a mediator that God always hears. All the time. And now, this mediator that God always hears is appointed to things pertaining to God. That's what verse 1 says. They are appointed to things pertaining to God. The high priest is appointed to do the works of God. But what are these things that they are appointed to? To offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the work of the high priest is to minister before God on behalf of man through the offering of gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is needed for intercession. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. So the high priest is given to offer gifts on behalf of man. The sacrifice for sin is the most important gift. And as we know that our high priest is Jesus Christ, he also was the sacrifice. So Christ offers himself as the sacrifice and as the high priest. So the high priest and the sacrifice are inseparable. The high priest and the sacrifice are inseparable. Listen to verse 2. From Hebrews. The high priest is taken among men so that he can be compassionate to the needs of men, that he can unite and identify himself with the needs of men. An angel could not be your high priest because an angel does not identify with the weaknesses of men. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the high priest has to be made like the people that he is representing before God. And the compassion of our high priest comes from the human nature of Christ. And this is the reason why Christ, being God, has to add human nature to himself. That he may unite himself to us, that he may identify with our fallen humanity. Verse 3. The offering of sacrifices for his own sin 
this had the tabernacle system in mind. The priesthood of Aaron was mediated by sinful man. So before they could make a sacrifice for anybody, they had to make a sacrifice for their own sins. But we know that Christ was sinless, so this part does not apply to Christ because he did not have any sin of his that needed sacrifice. Verses 4 and 5. The appointment of the high priest. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. No one takes the honor of appointing themselves to be a high priest. There's not a single person who takes the honor of appointing themselves to be a high priest. Even for Israel, the high priest who could not even serve by the sacrifices that he offered still had to be appointed by God. So you cannot approach God outside anybody who God has not appointed. So when you hear people say, Christianity cannot be the only way to God. They don't know what they're talking about. Because they don't know the God of the Bible. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is exactly saying that. He is saying, there's no man who can come to the Father but by me. There's no other way to approach God. There's no other way to approach God. So Christ was appointed of God to be our mediator, to be our representative. God is the offended party in this whole transaction. And as it were, God needs, in quotes, God never needed anything, but he needs a mediator also, who represents him in this dispute? But who can represent God? We have two parties here. We have God who is the offended party. And we are the offenders. And if God does not appoint someone to come between you and him, you are dead. You'll be electrocuted. So, God can represent God. God does not have a problem of representing himself. The only party that has a problem is you. The only party that has a problem is you. You can represent yourself against other men. Sinful men against sinful men, that's okay. And God can also represent men before other men. But... Who can represent men before a holy and righteous God? That's where the question is. Only God as man can do that. Only God taking up human flesh and becoming a God-man can do that. Listen to 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man. So by saying there's one mediator between God and man, he is saying there's only one high priest between God and man. There's only one high priest before God and man. So this is the problem and this is the solution. Your problem, in other words, is a problem of mediation. If you have to pinpoint at anything that you have trouble with, that you ever have trouble with from now and all of eternity, it's only one single problem, and it's that you need a mediator. It's a problem of mediation. That is your only problem. Your problem right now is not that you're going to die. Your problem right now is not 
any marriage financial or communication problem. You have a mediation problem. And all men have a mediation problem. Because God is going to require and he requires us to be in his presence. To answer for all that we have done. And how are we going to meet him in peace? Only if we have the mediator who has offered the sacrifice that God wants. Christ, in doing this, became our surety. Christ, in becoming our mediator, in becoming our high priest, became our surety. Becoming a surety means to legally take the obligation of performing on behalf of someone. And being made legally liable for anything that is not performed. So when Christ becomes a mediator of a new covenant, he is saying, I am the surety of this covenant. Whatever God requires for you to be accepted by him, he has taken the liability and the responsibility and to suffer the consequences of anything that is not done, which he did on the cross. Christ, our surety. So Christ became liable so much that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Holy Spirit records this for us through Apostle Paul and says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin for us. That is part of the obligation of being a mediator and a high priest. He takes the obligation of receiving our sin by imputation and suffering the legal consequences of taking our sin upon himself that we, not just for the end of that, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. So, this is beautiful. And men do not understand this, so they work. They want to go back to the law. Because they think they're honoring God by doing the law. No, the law is supposed to show you that you need Christ. The law is supposed to show you that without a surety, without a high priest, without a mediator, you are in serious trouble. But if Christ took the legal obligation of obeying God and paying the debt that we owed, then our legal obligation was completely discharged in him. Our legal obligation to perform anything that God requires for our acceptance by him was completely. And I am purposefully using completely. I'm purposefully using completely because it's completely done. The legal demands placed on us have completely been satisfied in Christ Jesus. So why the resurrection is important then? Why the resurrection is important then? We know from Hebrews 9.22 that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Without shedding of blood there is no remission. And Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood that is here talked about is not just the scratching and bleeding of Jesus. It's not the scratching of the sacrifice and getting some blood out. That's not what is being talked about. Without blood is saying without death. Without death, there is no remission of sins. But how do we know that the blood that was shed was enough to remove the sins? That's the question. 
And this is the question that resurrection is trying to answer for you. How do we know that Christ completely paid for all your sins, your transgressions, and your iniquities? Is the resurrection. Is the resurrection. Now we go back to our text. Leviticus 16, 23 and 24. The Lord has taught and represented this teaching three times in the same chapter, in Leviticus 16. Three times in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, 23 and 24. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on, when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there, he shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Luke twenty four twenty four. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. As Aaron was done with the sacrifice, he had to take off his clothes and bathe and be clean. Christ, as the sacrifice, he went on the cross bearing old clothes stained by our sin. And as he resurrects, he does not wear the same clothes. Peter goes to the tomb, and what does he see? He sees the clothes of Christ in the tomb. This is what Leviticus was teaching. It was teaching that when the high priest had offered the sacrifice, the high priest had to have change of clothes, which is change of righteousness. Christ, by taking our sin, was taking old grave clothes and he had to leave them behind because he was leaving our sin behind. Number two, Leviticus 16 verses 7 to 10. He, the high priest, shall take two gods and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two gods and one for the Lord and one lot for the scapegoat. Verse 9, then Aaron shall offer the God on which the Lord for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the God on which the Lord for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So on the day of atonement, Aaron had two gods. And he had to lay hands on one of the gods after he had taken cast a lot on them one of the two gods was to be killed as a sin offering and the other one after the high priest had put his hand on the head of the god and confessed the sins of the children of Israel would let the god go into the wilderness these are two gods but they are not two it's one god it's one God that is explaining the same thing. The God that dies, dies because of sin. And the God that goes to the wilderness is the one God that died and resurrected. They are doing the same thing. But because there are two gods, the one God could not literally die and resurrect. But the Lord was teaching that by the imputation of sin to the one God that dies, that was explaining the other God. So both gods actually explain each other. The God has to die and has to live. Just as Christ, our sacrifice, has to die and also has to live. That's resurrection. Leviticus 16, 17. And when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. 
that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. When Christ was making atonement, he was not making atonement for himself. He was making atonement for his household. Christ was making atonement for his household. And only when Aaron was done with the work of the sacrifice did he call people in. For no one was supposed to be in the tabernacle as long as Aaron was still doing the work of sacrifice. So our Lord Jesus Christ, when he died, he was making atonement for our sins. But when he resurrected, that was an announcement to say, I have done the work. When the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected, he was announcing, just as Aaron was announcing to the children of Israel, that I am done with the work. It's okay for you to get into the tabernacle. And Christ was saying, I have done the work. It's okay for you to approach God. And remember what the children of Israel were doing by going into the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of God's presence. So Christ is saying by his resurrection that the way into the Holy of Holies has been opened for us. We can come and commune with our God in peace. But why is it important that the high priest be alive? I'm going to keep hammering on this. I'm going to keep hammering on this because it's just too important for us for our faith and assurance. The resurrection of Christ is God's testimony. It's not man's testimony. The resurrection of Christ is God's testimony that the work of atonement was done. The resurrection of Christ was God's testimony of the completion of the work of salvation. The testimony of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. And look at how the testimony is given. The testimony is not given by those who need salvation. The testimony is given by the one who has worked and accomplished the salvation. The one who cooks dinner is the one who announces that dinner is ready. You can't be getting people to sit on the table when you are still 20 minutes or two hours away from making dinner ready. But when dinner is ready, the one who is in the kitchen will announce that everybody, let's get together, wash your hands, and let's get ready to eat because dinner is ready. So Christ, in the work of salvation, when he resurrects from the dead, he's making the announcement that the work of salvation is completed. So the sinner then, the sinner only comes to Christ to receive. You come to the table to have dinner. You're not coming to the table to start cooking again. And yet that's exactly how people approach salvation. They come to the table and they bring onions and tomatoes, they start cutting at the table. Instead of eating what is already prepared. So Christ has completed the work of salvation and we come to receive what Christ has worked. So we come to Christ because God the Father has chosen us from the, before the foundation of the world. God the Father has drawn us and Christ has redeemed us. And the Holy Spirit has given us a new birth. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear about God choosing people. They don't want to hear about God's election of people to salvation. Because they want to make it about themselves. They want to make it about themselves. But if what the scriptures are teaching is true, of which is true, then... Anyone who has faith in Christ has been chosen of God from before the foundation of the world. And because they've been 
chosen of God and redeemed by Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit, there's nothing that they can do to undo their salvation. The price and the ticket have already been paid for. And you are going. Whether you're kicking or screaming, you are going. You will make it right to the end. Whether you kick or scream, you are going to heaven if you have been given the testimony of Christ. So people think they come to Christ because they initiated the call by themselves. People think they come to Christ or they came to Christ because they initiated the call. But the scriptures do not teach that men can come to Christ by themselves. Because there's none who has interest in Christ. There's not a single man or woman or child who has interest in Christ unless Christ had interest in them. Listen to Isaiah 53.3. He, Christ, is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Men do not esteem Christ. There's no beauty in Christ as to attract men. Christ is not a Hollywood-type character. And this was God's purpose in doing that so that only those who knew Christ by faith would see Christ for who he is. Even if men were trying were to try and call God, they do not have enough credit to call and make a heavenly call. They do not know the area code to go to heaven. They do not know and do not have the number to get to heaven. And if they call without Christ, God is not going to see their name on his phone. God does not see, does not hear, does not listen, does not take any calls that do not have the name and blood of Christ on them. He does not. No matter the pretensions of religion, if the blood of Christ is not there, there's not, there's not enough credit to make your call. But if you made the call, you were retaining a call. If you made a call to Christ, you were retaining a call because he called first. He called first and he gave you the credit to call him back. So what am I saying? I'm saying that Christ has made us accepted by God. Christ has made us accepted by God. And faith alone, in Christ alone, is the only legal tender that you can transact with God. In the USA, we use US dollars. You can't use currency from any other country. You have to exchange it to US dollars. If you use any other currency to try and go buy gas, you won't be able to buy gas. You won't be able to, if anything, you are going to get arrested and put in jail. And that's exactly what God is going to do with anybody who tries to transact heavenly things outside Jesus Christ. He takes them to hell. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So there's none who can get accepted by themselves. There's none who can make themselves accepted by God. We have to hold to Christ. We have to hold to Christ. We have to hold to Christ with as much as we have. We have to hold tightly to Christ. Even if it feels like he's removed from us. The nature of faith is such that there's not even a parachute to use. If you got on a plane and you're going to, to jump out of the plane, you only jump out because you have the safety of the parachute. But when you come to Christ, there's no rope and there's no parachute. 
And not only are you jumping from 50,000 feet, you are jumping from here to eternity. And you are jumping to eternity without a parachute, without a rope to hold on to, and saying, Lord Jesus, here I come. Catch me or I fall. That's faith. That's faith. And God says, when you do that, you are holding to Christ. When you do that, you are holding to Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 talks about people wanting to establish their own righteousness. People want to establish their own righteousness. We want to work, we want to establish our own righteousness so that we can look to it. We can look to our pile, the hoarders, fill up this basement with piles of things that we have done, that we may present them to God, that we may hitch a U-Haul and take it right into heaven and say, Lord, look at what I've been doing for you. I'm such a faithful servant. You have to accept me. Listen to what Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, verse one and four, uh, verses 1 to 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Hear that? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Christ's righteousness is God's righteousness. And God will only accept you by his own righteousness. What God wants you to have, he has given you in Christ Jesus. Whatever Christ did from the moment that he was born, whatever Christ did from the moment that he was born to the time that he died and resurrected, he was not doing it for himself. He was God. He did not need to do that. Whatever Christ did, he did it for you. Whatever Christ did, he did it on your behalf. Because you could not do it. You could not do it. You could not do it. And now we have to understand what Christ did. And if Christ actually did something and he completed it and he wasn't doing it for himself but for you, that it means God has accepted your works. God has accepted your works because your works are Christ's works. God has accepted all your works because you are united to Christ. And whatever Christ did, he was doing it for Crystal. He wasn't doing it for himself. Why did he do it for Crystal? Because Christ knows that she can't do it. So even though you struggle right now, that's the very reason why Christ did it. <laughs> because he knew you couldn't do it by yourself. He has to do it. So then, the only evidence that we are right with God is found in what Christ did. It is found right in the word of Christ. It is found in what the scriptures declare. But listen to what Christ said. John seventeen four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, have, you, that you gave me to do. John 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Christ had a work that he had to do. Christ had a work that he had to do that he says in his understanding that he accomplished. Christ had a work that he had to do that in his understanding said 
I accomplished the work that you set me to do. So when he was on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, it's finished. What was he saying? What was finished is the work of salvation. And Tetelestai, the Greek word, was used in two ways. Number one, it was used when a prisoner had done their time in jail. And on the day of release, their certificate of release was stemmed Tetelestai. And what that meant was they had done their time and they had paid their obligation and consequences of their disobedience. They had paid all the legal demands of the law and the law had no more claim on them. So as soon as that stamp was on there, there was no officer of the law who could take them back and put them to prison because of what was stamped. That's what Christ was saying. And the other way that it was used was in commercial transactions. If there were two traders or dealers who were exchanging goods, after full payment had been made for the goods on the bill was termed tetelestai. And that meant that the full price had been paid for and that the goods had exchanged ownership. And the goods had exchanged ownership. So Christ, when he came and said tetelestai, he was saying, I have paid completely for the sins of my people. And they have been set free. The prisoners have been set free. And there's no more claim either of sin or death or the devil on them. And the ownership has changed. They belong to me. That's what Christ accomplished on the cross. But now to the acceptance of that. Because if Christ did all this and he said it's finished but did not come out of the grave, it doesn't matter what Christ said. If Christ died and he said it's finished, but he did not resurrect, then God did not accept whatever Christ did. So the issue of resurrection is to the satisfaction of God and acceptance of what Christ did on your behalf. Listen to Isaiah 53. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge can also be translated by the knowledge of him. By the knowledge of him shall my righteous one make many to be accounted righteous. By the knowledge of Christ by the knowledge of Christ, God's righteous servant, shall many be accounted righteous. Now, is that the knowledge of me or the knowledge of any other person? Look at how God is pointing us to Christ. He says, by the knowledge of Christ, shall you be accounted righteous. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Christ is God's servant that he delights in. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if Christ and if God is satisfied and is pleased in Christ Jesus, then God is also satisfied and pleased with you. God is satisfied in Christ Jesus. So, a demonstration that God is satisfied or is propitiated, that the wrath of God has been fully propitiated in Christ, is that God resurrects Christ. God has to resurrect Christ. If Christ paid for all your sins, Christ cannot stay in the grave. If Christ completely paid for your sins, 
Christ cannot remain in the grave. He has to rise. Christ has to rise. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 6. Verse 3 to 6. A lot of people want to get to Christ. They want to get part of Christ. And then they want to add some things to Christ. And when you try to add things to Christ, you are adding your works to Christ. You are saying, I am my own mediator. I am going to go between God and Christ. You are trying to go between God and Christ to become a mediator for Christ and God. You want the opposite. You want Christ to go between you and God. So when Christ says, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father but, but me, he's saying the Father is behind me, and I'm right here. I'm the gate. Okay? So listen to Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So God is only interested in you in as much as you are in Christ. God has absolutely no interest in you to save you if you are not in Christ Jesus. God does not love you and me for us. He doesn't love you and me for our own sake. He loves you and me for the sake of Christ. And because God loves Christ from eternity, God has loved you from eternity. Because Christ and God are inseparable. You can't separate God. And because you are in Christ, God the Father put you in Christ before the foundation of the world, you cannot be removed from Christ. So when Christ comes and says, it's finished, he really meant that. He really meant that your salvation was completely finished. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The sheep do not give their life for the shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And he says, this is the will of the father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. But should raise it up at the last day. So Christ has to die. And he has to resurrect. Christ has to resurrect for another reason. Christ has to be born again. A lot of people have never heard that. Christ has to be born again. Christ has to be born again because he has sin put on him. Christ has our sins on him. And if Christ has to rise from the dead, he has to be born again. What is a new birth? It's resurrection. Resurrection is a new birth. And if Christ is not resurrected, you cannot be born again. And if Christ is not sanctified, you cannot be sanctified. If Christ is not justified, you cannot be justified. So, the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 4.25 that he was delivered over for our transgressions. Right? He was delivered over for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. So, you and I to be born again, Christ has to be born again. Because whatever happens to Christ that is what we are experiencing ourselves. 
Christ is not doing that for himself. He is doing it for all of us that we may follow the pattern. And Christ becomes the first fruits, the installment of what God is working for us. We'll get done today. If Christ is put on the cross and did not resurrect, we are wasting our time. If Jesus was put on the cross and did not rise, it doesn't matter who he is. If Christ goes on the cross but did not rise, we of all men are miserable. The resurrection of Christ is just too, too important and central to our salvation and to the Christian faith. So much that Apostle Paul would dedicate a number of verses in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12, and 20, 12 to 22. And we we'll read those. Hear what he says. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins." Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In closing, our salvation, that is our redemption from sin and the possession of life in Christ, is only through our union with Christ. We have union with Christ in his life. We have union with Christ in his death. We have union with Christ in his resurrection. So when Christ died and resurrected, we died with him. We will never know what it means to die. We will never know. We shall never know what it means to die in the manner in which Christ died. We shall never know. And when we get baptized, the baptism is for our identification and our union with Christ. We go into the water to identify with the death of Christ and going into the grave. And we come out of the water as a sign of our victory and resurrection with Christ. So the resurrection is key. Because if you get baptized and you stay in the water, if you stay in the baptismal, you are dead. But if you come out of the baptismal, it means you have resurrected. It means you are still alive. And that's what Christ has done for us. He has died and resurrected with us. His whole body. So whatever God wants you, from you, whatever God needs from you, whatever it is that God will ever need from you, he has performed in Christ. Whatever God will ever require from you, he has performed in Christ. So our high priest, Jesus Christ, has risen from the grave because the work of salvation is complete and perfected. It's complete. It's a complete work. And there's a lot of theology that comes from this because we have a lot of people who still think there's something that they are doing. They have some faithfulness that they have to bring to this whole work for it to be completed. That's not true. It sounds righteous, but it's only dishonoring Christ. It's only dishonoring Christ. So, 
our justification and assurance before God rests in whether God accepted the work of our high priest. And God has accepted the work of a high priest. And we know that because Christ rose from the dead. And the writer of Hebrews will close for us and says, He is able to save forever. He is able, Christ, to save to the uttermost. He is able to save eternally those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. Our Lord is risen. Love this. Love this theology.